We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 once again today, and, and we're continuing on a, a short series as the book of Acts begins in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2, and the series is called Origin Story, and I love the song that we just sang. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he sent the Holy Spirit, and the church was born because our King and Messiah and Lord Jesus has risen from the grave. And so the last few weeks, we've been talking about the origin story of the church, just like any superhero or any other great mythical character has a great origin story. The true character of this group of people called the church has an origin story. And we've been seeing the key figures in all of this. We've been seeing that Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father as he ascended to heaven. And because of that, he rules as king over all the earth and over all creation and over his people. And he sent the Holy Spirit to us. We saw this last week. And in sending the Holy Spirit, he has sent out his disciples, his messengers, the apostles, and his disciples, his followers, to live on mission. And that's what we're going to pick up today. But what is the mission of the church? I mean, up to this point, all we've seen is that the apostles, they got to see the risen Jesus. They got to watch him ascend to heaven. They got to experience the spirit coming down and they have received the commission from Jesus to be sent out to proclaim his good news. But, but nothing has happened yet to fulfill that mission. <laughs> the table has only been set. Now they're called to go out and live on mission. What does it mean to live on mission for the church? What is their mission? which should cause us to ask the question, not just what was their mission in the first century, but what is our mission today, 2,000 years later? You know, over the last, well, years, <laughs> decades even, but especially over the last few months, we've been seeing all kinds of turmoil in our society, turmoil in our culture. And so much sin and so much brokenness and so much death and so much despair. And there's all kinds of debates, all kinds of conflicts, all kinds of debates on social media, conversations, conversations in our streets. Some of those conversations have become very loud, at times even violent, because we see injustice in our world. And we, we have to ask ourselves, what's the solution to the brokenness that we feel? And so one solution is to legislate, to put in laws into effect that could somehow change things so that things aren't as bad as they seem like they are today. And we've got a, a wonderful document in our country called the Constitution. It is a wonderful document that provides boundaries and it provides uh, things that, that are put into place in our society to, to help kind of rein in the brokenness and the sin and the despair that we all feel. And it's a great document. But yet, even with some of the greatest laws in all the world in place in our country, we still see brokenness and sin and death come out all over the place. I mean, think about this. If, if we had come up with the most perfect law that anyone could ever create, maybe that would change society forever. Well, we do know there is one perfect lawgiver, and we do know that he gave a perfect law, the Torah of the Old Testament to the Hebrew people, to his people, the Israelites, and that certainly did the trick, right? A perfect lawgiver gives a perfect law to a group of people, and that totally kept them from sinning and displaying the brokenness that was in their hearts, right? Did that work? No, it didn't work. In fact, what happened, it just revealed even more deeply just how sinful, just how broken our hearts really are. So what's the solution as we live on this mission to the hardness 
of the human heart. And the title for our message today is this, Good News for Hard Hearts. Good news for hard hearts. But I want to invite you into just a little moment of, of, of uh, lightness for a moment, right? Now, many of you probably played games as a kid, right? One of my favorite games as a kid was the game called Operation. Let's see if we got that slide there. There's the old Operation I remember as a kid. And, and if you remember, here's this guy, this poor guy. I mean, he's naked. It's a kid's game for crying out loud. It's kind of weird, right? But here he is, and he's got all these different things going on. And you use those little tweezers at the bottom, right? And if you remember how it works, you use the tweezers, and it's electrical. So that if you hit one of the outsides of the little holes that you have to try and fix in his body, it would buzz and make a sound, and it always freaked me out, right? And, it, and you feel it, and you see it, and okay, now it's the other person's turn to try and pull out the bones and the other different issues to help fix this poor guy who, who needs more operations than I think is humanly possible. But, but he's there, and we're trying to help this guy out, right? And so, uh, so you think about this. All you've got are these little tweezers, and there he's got this broken heart that you're trying to pull out so carefully without buzzing the sides. And we've got a slide here, the next one, with a group of kids, right? Here's a group of kids qualified now, right? qualified to do surgery on this poor guy. And they're laughing and having a good time because there's nothing really at risk or at stake. And thankfully, it looks like in that picture that this guy is actually clothed. So that's, that's good. He's got some, something on his lower, lower half. But, but you think about this. I mean, it almost feels like these laws that we have are almost like these little pair of tweezers that are trying to heal the hardness of our hearts. When you think about doing real heart surgery, it is a major undertaking. Let's go to the next slide. I mean, look at, look at everything that's here. These people are covered from head to toe. They've got coverings over this poor person that's about to experience major, major heart surgery. Our hearts are so incredibly intricate that they can't be taken with a little pair of tweezers to try and fix them. But, but that's the physical heart that we're talking about that we see in this picture. What about the human heart, our spiritual heart? We need qualified people. I know I wouldn't want a qualified surgeon to work on me, right? Not a kid with a pair of tweezers. But that surgeon uses intricate tools. Let's take a look at the next slide. The tools. What are the tools that it takes to do heart surgery on a person? And, and what about our, our spiritual and emotional hearts? How can that be changed? How can that be transformed? Well, I don't, I don't think that the law, I don't think legislation will do the trick. If we think that our mission is to change human hearts through legislation primarily, not as a boundary, but to actually reach hearts and re bring real change to society, it's like we're kids playing operation with a pair of tweezers. What we need is God's solution for human hearts. And this brings us to our big idea today as we look at Acts chapter 2 verses 14 to 41. Our big idea is this, the gospel of Jesus Christ communicated by a spirit-empowered person is the only cure for a hard heart. The gospel of Jesus Christ, God's good news message, communicated not by an animal, not by a flag in the sky, but communicated by a spirit-empowered person is the only cure for a hard heart. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41. Follow along as I read aloud. It says this, But Peter, standing with the eleven, meaning the eleven apostles, him being the twelfth, he lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, 
and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I, shall show, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And that shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about, about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his disciples on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls. That is absolutely amazing to think that one evangelistic message, one proclamation of the gospel in one moment by a spirit-empowered person causes a cure of human hearts, that people are transformed, they're pierced in their hearts, and they receive the message of Peter. Well, what we're going to see here today is that what is needed to cure a hard heart? 
What is needed to cure a hard heart? Well, none other than the gospel. The gospel, the good news of God's salvation of sinners like us, like you and me. How? Well, through God's son, Jesus, who is the Christ. And we're gonna see that, that this cure requires three things. It requires a messenger, it requires a message, and it requires a movement. A messenger, a message, and a movement. First of all, let's take a look at the messenger. Well, the messenger is none other than Peter himself. And we see in verses 12 to 14 that, that Peter is standing up in response. He's standing up into response to, to what the people of Israel and in, in Jerusalem at this time, what they're seeing. Remember last week we saw that, that the apostles, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began going out and they were speaking because the Spirit was controlling them, the Spirit was empowering them and indwelling them, that they were speaking in languages that they'd never heard before. And as they were speaking those languages, they were praising God. And the people around the town at that time, they're thinking, what are we hearing? We're hearing, we're from all different parts of, of the Roman Empire, and we're here to worship during this feast. But I'm hearing these guys that I know that are fishermen from Galilee speaking in languages that we've never heard before. And some of them were astonished. Some of them were in awe, but others were making fun of them and mocking them, saying, hey, these guys must be kind of drunk, right? They're under the influence of something. It must be alcohol. But Peter steps in and he answers their questions. He gives them an address and he says, look, I'm telling you here today, these men aren't drunk. In fact, Peter, he, he kind of gives us a little humorous response. He says, it's only nine o'clock in the morning, guys. It would be unlikely that these guys are drunk. Let me tell you really what the explanation is that's going on here. But Peter steps up. Remember, Peter the denier. Peter the coward. But yet here, Peter in boldness through the power of the Spirit steps up and he lifts up his, lifts up his voice and he addresses them. Now it says in verse 4 that he addressed them. Back uh, earlier in the chapter, we see that the, the apostles, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were giving utterance as the Spirit gave them words to speak. It's the same word that Peter's beginning to do. You see, Peter is under the control and under the power and the guidance of the Spirit, just as the men were who were speaking in these foreign languages. And he gets up and he speaks and he addresses the crowd. This Peter, he was no perfect man. And neither are we. His qualifications to speak was that he knew the risen Christ who had sent him. And he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And he cared enough in the moment to say something. He cared enough in the moment to say something. You see, friends, when we think about our mission, it first starts with caring enough to step into the moment and speak up about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This was the messenger, an imperfect man, knowing the risen Christ, empowered by the Spirit, and stepping into a moment, stepping into a situation to say, I can give you the answer to the questions that you're asking right now. You see, our evangelistic task isn't to always just stand on a street corner and put down a soapbox and stand on it with a megaphone and tell everybody that they're going to hell and that they need to turn to Jesus. Now, that may be effective for some, but for many of us, the evangelistic task, the task of speaking out the good news about Jesus is just simply being obedient and willing enough and under the control of the Spirit to say, Lord, I'm willing to step into this situation right now. I have a hurting or a confused friend or family member or neighbor or coworker. Am I willing to step into the moment and address the issues that they feel in their hearts? And so when we see the cure for the human heart, it first has to start with a willing messenger living on mission. That's Peter. Is that you? 
a willing messenger, willing to step into a situation. But what does Peter do? Does he start going on and, and trying to explain it all the way and he's trying to give every apologetic? You see, long time ago, thousands of years ago, our God, no, 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 he just answers their question. And so we get to the message. We've seen the messenger, but what about the message? We're gonna spend a little bit more time here, the message. Well, the message is the good news, God's good news about his son, Jesus Christ, who he declared and showed to be the Messiah and the Lord and the king of all creation. And he did works through him and he allowed him to be crucified and raised him from the dead and exalted him as king and Messiah. And so what we see first about this message is that he, it is about Christ, our message, the message that fulfills the mission that we've been called to do is centered upon the Christ. Who is the Christ? Well, it's Jesus, the Lord. The Christ is Jesus. You see, friends, Christianity from beginning to end is all about Jesus, who is the Christ. If people ask you, well, who are you? What are you? What religious affiliation you have? Well, I'm a Christian. Well, what's Christianity all about then? It's about Jesus fundamentally, friends. Christianity begins and ends, and everything in between is all about Jesus. Christianity is not primarily an ethic, though it has profound ethical implications. And that's what I think that many of our friends and coworker, coworkers and family members who do not know Christ think about the Christian faith, is that it's about some sort of religious ethic, some sort of devotion or commitment to a, a, a moral code. Well, friends, it has moral and ethical implications, but Christianity is fundamentally about Jesus. Christianity begins with the truth that, that God has done all the work, all the work to restore humanity to himself through the life, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And Jesus then subsequent outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, friends, is the center of God's work in the world. And if he's the center of this mission, the center of our message has to first and fundamentally, from first to last, be about Jesus. Well, what does Peter say Jesus has done? As he's explaining this, uh, this, this, uh, this question here, they have this question, what's going on? Jesus says, well, let me tell you what's going on. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, has poured out the Holy Spirit. And he quotes from Joel, uh, Joel chapter two, and we see that in verses 16 through 21. And Peter quotes from Joel. You see, what the apostles saw was something that they knew was new in a moment, but yet was old because it had been around for so, so long. You see, friends, the apostles, they didn't invent a new religion. They were basing their faith, they were basing their message in a faith that had been passed down for thousands of years all throughout Jewish scripture, all throughout Hebrew scripture. And Peter is linking what, who Jesus is and what he's done to an old, old message that God was going to do a work in the world. And how did he do that? God poured out the Holy Spirit. We saw it last week, like a waterfall, like a river, the Spirit who is God, the Spirit who is a he, not an it, he is personal. And the Spirit who was sent by the Father and the Son has come down. And Jesus, because he is the Lord of life and he has ascended to heaven, he has poured out the Spirit. Well, what does Peter go on to say next about, about this Jesus? Well, he is attested to be the Messiah. Jesus poured out the Spirit, and Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah means the anointed one. 
the one who is the Christ, God's designated man, God's designated God-man who would come and rule and bring salvation to his people. Jesus was attested to be the Messiah by God the Father through the works he did. Verse 22 says that this Jesus was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. You see, the signs and the miracles that we see that Jesus do, they show us his compassion. They show us his grace. But above all that, what does it show about Jesus? It shows that Jesus is God's chosen, anointed, holy one who is bringing peace and hope and life and restoration to humanity. His works attest to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, not only that, because he's the Messiah, but God raised him from the dead. We see that in verses 24 through 32. Peter goes on to, to not just quote the prophet Joel, but he brings up David. Psalm 16 speaks of, of David who says, My God, you see me, and I know that you will resurrect me, that you will not abandon my soul to Hades and let my flesh see corruption. But guess what happened to David? He died. And in fact, Peter says, we've got his tomb even here today. So what was going on? Peter says, I want you guys to know something. David, he didn't just speak about himself. He spoke in fulfillment. He spoke prophetically. He, he knew that there would be someone who would come from his line, from his kingly line, who would come and would die, but that God would honor this Messiah who would not see decay and see corruption. And Peter is saying, don't look to David, because we see David's tomb not far from us here in Jerusalem to this day, but look beyond David. See the one who came from David's line, this Jesus who is the Messiah, who God raised from the dead after the third day. And Peter says, and we've seen this risen son of David, this risen Messiah, this Jesus the Christ with our own eyes. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this. God showed that Jesus was his appointed, anointed one because he raised him from the dead. And so here we've got kind of a, a syllogism. If you like to think through logic and philosophy, we've got something that Peter is doing here. He says, that according to the scriptures, the Messiah must raise, be risen and raised from the dead. But God raised Jesus from the dead. Therefore, what must be true? Therefore, Jesus is the Messiah. If you're asking, is Jesus really the one? You know, our, our, our beloved, uh, I mean, in many ways, our, our ancestors that we derive our faith from. The Jewish people, I love, I've got friends that, that minister with an organization called Jews for Jesus, and I, I love these friends so much. They're Jewish people by ethnicity, but they identify Yeshua, Jesus, the, as the Christ, and as the Lord, and as the Messiah. And what they're, they're called to do is they're trying to reach out to all their Jewish friends and family, and those that they engage with online, and they say, do you see who Jesus is? We love our Jewish friends and neighbors and, and maybe even family, but oh, friends, it's not Jewishness in the physical blood that allows one to be, a per, uh, to be a part of the family of God. It's one who acknowledges that Jesus is the king and he is the Messiah. And Peter is talking to his Jewish friends, his brothers of ethnicity, and he's saying, I know who our Messiah is. It is Jesus of Nazareth. God showed him to be the Messiah because he did powerful works and he died and he was raised from the dead and he's poured out the spirit. 
And so us as readers, us as readers of the book of Acts, we read this and we see we, you and I can be assured that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Savior. We talk about faith as being something that's almost like a blind faith. I'm not going to do it because I may fall off the stage, but you close your eyes and you take a step out in faith, right? Remember Indiana Jones did that, right? To, to pass one of the tests to get to the Holy Grail in the third movie, right? This blind leap of faith. But what we see here is that we believe in something that we haven't seen, but we believe in something that is sure. Jesus has shown himself to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, because powerful works were done through him. He was raised from the dead, and he's been exalted to the right hand of God. That tells us that not only is Jesus powerful, Jesus is sent by the Father, Jesus is the Christ, but guess what, friends? Jesus is Lord. Our Savior, our Messiah, Jesus is the Lord. In fact, in verses 33 to 36, if you're following on your Bibles, Peter summarizes his whole message here about the Christ who's at the center of his message. And he says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens... But he himself says, and now he quotes Psalm 110. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, meaning our God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and the Israelites, Yahweh the Lord said to my Lord, my master. Well, what's he saying here? There is the God who is our father, who gave us the law, and he said to another, who is my Lord. Two lords talking to one another. My, the Lord said to my Lord, what did he say? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know, Acts 2.36, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He is Lord, friends. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, guess what? You will be saved. You will experience the cure of your hard heart. And so we see this message. It's about Christ, but Peter doesn't stop there. He says, I also have to tell you something that you need to own up to your sin. So the next part of this message is about conviction. Conviction. Verses 23 and, and 36 of Acts chapter two says this. Again, Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And he repeats the, the, same, the same charges in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. They crucified Jesus. There's a culpability that goes along with this. See, part of our mission and part of our message is to speak of Christ, but it's also to show in love and in grace and humility that we are sinners, that we have rebelled against our God, that if we, if we were in the same sandals of those who were in Jerusalem at this time, we would have been there in the same way mocking and accusing this Jesus, and we would have willingly given in to allowing him to be crucified on a cross. That's how wicked our hearts are. But Peter doesn't beat around the bush. 
He doesn't ignore this fact that must be pointed out to them. Brothers of Israel, you need to know something. This Christ, this Jesus, he's the Christ. He is the Lord. He is the one who's risen from the grave. But you need to know something. You crucified him. You crucified him. There's culpability. There's sin. You see, friends, our sin has to be revealed. Think about this surgeon. We're talking about, you know, this surgery that needs to be done to our hearts. Well, why are we willing to go under the knife of surgery? It's because we've been given a bad diagnosis. It's because we've been told that we're sick. It's because we're told that our hearts need an operation. Friends, out of love for those that we see in our lives, they have to hear from us the truth. We can't beat around the bush. We can't push off the blame for all of their problems to say, it had nothing to do with you. You're only and merely a victim. No, you're also a villain as well. Friends, we are victims and we are villains as well. We are the ones that would stand there and put this Jesus on a cross. It brings guilt, our sin. It brings shame upon ourselves and upon others. And it causes us to live in fear. Fear of the future. Fear of the unknown. Fear of what to do with the sickness and illness and sin and rebellion of our hearts. But how do we do this in a loving way? I would say that we do this in love by not just saying it's you, but it's me too. It's not just you, it's us. We are guilty. You see, there's a humility that comes that that we must have as we help people see the depths of their sin and as they experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We don't stand in judgment over anyone, but we stand beside people saying, I deserve the same judgment as you. God alone is our judge. Psalm 51 verse 17, David writes, after he had sinned deeply and horrifically, David writes, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, Lord, you will not despise. In other spots, it says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so what must happen in our message is a moment for conviction. Let me tell you, a few weeks ago, I I challenged you to to think through your, your stories, your testimonies of what God has done in your life as we go out and live on mission as witnesses in our communities. And out of humility, I I would be arrogant to say I'm not willing to share my own failures. But out of the conviction of my own heart, because I see that God honors a broken spirit and a contrite head, I'll share with you part of my story is this. I was an arrogant, self-righteous young man, growing up in the church, learning so much doctrine and so much theology, and being in so many places where I believed and knew I'm cutting it straight. I know it's got to be true. You see, truth is a wonderful thing, but truth and knowledge can also puff up if they're not tempered with humility. And so as a young man who was a follower of Jesus, but yet had unaddressed arrogance, an unaddressed self-righteousness in his heart. It was when I got to college through a, a serious family failure and a serious personal failure of my own. As a 22, 21-, 22-year-old young man, I realized I am sinful. I am sinful. I'm to blame for the brokenness of my heart And where else could I go? I remember in those moments, my senior year of college, I barely graduated. My heart was so wrenched and broken and 
and in pain and, and seeking to want to find a solution to the pain that I was feeling. And that's when I encountered for a fresh start the grace of Jesus Christ, the grace of God. All of, the, all of the, the facade was washed away and I felt just naked before God. Here I am, Lord. You see all of my warts. You see all of my sin. You see all of my shame. And it's in that moment of conviction that I said, Lord, I embrace you once again. Please show me your grace. This is what it takes to have our hearts cured. It has to go through this conviction process. But listen to what Peter says in verse 23. This is magnificent. He says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Wait a minute here. Wait a minute here. Who killed Jesus, the Messiah? Was it the Jews? Sure. Was it the Romans? Absolutely. But who was in control of the entire plan? Who was in control of the entire plan? Throughout the entire ordeal for which every single one of these people were absolutely culpable, God says, it never took me by surprise. I knew it all the way through and nothing and no one could thwart my plan. We sang about it today, friends. The sovereign power and control and goodness of our God that even in the most heinous crime in all of human history, the crucifixion of the Messiah, the Son of God, God says this, my grace is greater than all their sin because I'm control, in control of it all from first until last. It says that this was done according to the foreknowledge of God. It, it means more than just his ability to anticipate the future. It's another way of talking about his determination of events in advance according to his own plan. He doesn't just see what's going to happen. He's coordinating events in such a way that says, even in their sin and rebellion, I'm working it all together for my good. This is the beauty of the gospel, friends. This is the beauty of it, that the human story, it would be horrific if our free wills alone were the determinative factors for our existences. Our hearts are too wicked to perform any good for ourselves in the sight of God. However, however, the beauty of the gospel is that even in our sin, including the most heinous act of crucifying the Son of God, God was at work according to his definite plan and foreknowledge for his glory and for our good. The good news is that though our sin is great and massive and ugly and disgusting and destructive and murderous, his grace and his love and his wisdom and his goodness and his knowledge and his plan is greater. There's so much debate that goes on for those that are in the academic fields. Well, is it human freedom that's stronger or is it God's power to control all things? Friends, I don't care where you find where those two meet, but I do know this. I am so glad that God's grace and his plan is greater than any wicked free choice that I have. God is in control of all things so that even the crucifixion of his son is according to God's foreknowledge and his plan to rescue you and to rescue me and to glorify and magnify his son. Well, what was the result of all this? We get to verse 37. What was their response? Acts 2, 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. The scalpel was taken 
to the spiritual and emotional hard hearts that they had. And they were exposed and they saw their sin. They saw their error. This word for being pierced to the heart, it's, 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 it's this idea that it's, it's a verb that refers to a sharp pain or a stab often associated with an emotion that brings grief and, and pain and sorrow. But in the moment of this pain, when they hear the gospel centered on Christ, bringing conviction, it goes down and penetrates farther than any law ever could to that time. The Spirit is joining with the message of Peter and it's delivering the good news of Jesus right to their hearts. And that's our big idea today, friends, is that the gospel delivered by a Spirit-empowered person is the only cure for a hard heart. These men and women that heard this, they were pierced in their hearts. It convicted them deeply. And they confessed. They confessed. Isn't this this amazing? If you were to share the good news about Jesus with someone, maybe you've done it before, and the person, they responded and say, okay, I'm nailed to the wall. I see this now. What do I do? I want to escape the judgment that I know I deserve. Oh, wouldn't that be a great question for someone to ask you? What shall I do? Peter steps up and he gives them a call. He gives them a call in verses 38 to 39. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, repent. It's not a word that's popular in many of our churches today, but we're a Bible-speaking church and with all humility, we would call every single one of us and every single person that we would come into contact with, you must repent for the forgiveness of your sins. In one way or another, demonstrating the need for repentance is a part of this this task of speaking the message of good news about Jesus. Repentance, it it means to turn. It means to change one's mind. And in the Hebrew idea, it's the, the idea to turn. It's an indicating a change in direction. What it's saying, Peter is saying, you rejected Jesus as the Messiah and as the Lord. And in rejecting him, you've rejected your God, the God of Israel. Now I'm calling you, repent, turn from your wickedness, from rejecting Jesus, and turn in allegiance to him. Repentance. Romans 2, 1 through 4 speaks to this. I don't have time to read it, but, but it says in Romans 2, 4 that God's kindness, his patience with us is meant to lead us to repentance. You can go to the next slide. Look at the end of that phrase, the end of Romans 2, 4. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, a turning of direction. Our hard hearts are going this way, but God in his gospel says, repent and turn and embrace my son. Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse 10 says this, for godly grief. Did you know that there's a way to grieve in a godly way? In a way that actually imitates God? What does God grieve about? He grieves about sin He grieves about rebellion in the people that he's created for himself. And so when we agree with him in grief and we say, I am grieving over my ungodliness and the ungodliness that I see in those around me, that kind of grief, friends, what does it produce? A repentance, a turning that leads to what? To salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief, grief that just feels sorry for oneself, sorry to experience the consequences of sin, that leads to nothing, but godly grief produces repentance leading to salvation. 
Repent. Repent, Peter says. He says, repent and then be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we've got to ask ourselves, does baptism save? Well, we're not going to get into it too much today, but the answer in short is no, baptism doesn't save. But what baptism does is that it's in an obedience to a command. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ means this. It expresses the positive side of repentance. You're not just turning away from your hard heart, but you're saying, I embrace Jesus as Lord. He has my my devotion. He has my allegiance. He has my love. And I'm willing to take on the rite of baptism as a sign to everyone of what's going on in my heart. You see, there are many times throughout the book of Acts, we're going to see it that, that the disciples, they, they preach and they proclaim and they say, you must repent and believe. And it's, it's minus baptism. And so what we see, what Peter's doing here, he's just saying, step up, show that you are giving your allegiance to Jesus and get baptized. I want to ask some of you, have you been baptized? If, if you confess faith in Jesus Christ, what's holding you back from getting in the waters of baptism? What you're doing is you're saying, I'm not willing to allow anyone to see that I truly belong to Jesus. But when we accept and when we declare Jesus as Lord in front of friends and family and, and others, those who see the work of God in our hearts, God the Father is smiling down and says, yes, I love when my kids declare their faith in my son. To those who call on his name. Well, we see that the gospel delivered by spirit-empowered people is the only cure for hard hearts. What is that cure? What, what is the cure that finally comes to our hearts? In verse 38, Peter says once again, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. When we receive Jesus Christ, what happens? I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. Friend, if, if you believed in Jesus Christ here today, you are forgiven of your sins. Past, present, future. It's washed away. It's washed away. We see the brokenness of this world. People feel depression. They feel heartache. They can't get away from their past. They can't get away from things that they've done and that have been done to them. But when Jesus, through his gospel, comes in and a person repents and believes in the good news about Jesus... All of the sin is washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven. You sit here today in Christ, forgiven of your sins. Praise be to God. And not only that, Peter says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A power that you've never had in your life before. A power that says, I used to only be able to do the things that displeased God, but now I've got God living inside me. I used to live outside the garden, outside of any hope of having a right relationship with God, but now through Jesus, I have God actually living inside me. And I've got a power that I've never had before. This is the cure for hard hearts. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ communicated by a spirit-empowered person that, that, that declares that Jesus is the Christ, this message that brings conviction over sin, this message that brings this cure, this cure when repentance and baptism and belief in Jesus Christ happen, this cure comes when a person confesses Jesus as Lord, forgiveness of sins, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the messenger, that's the message 
and we won't cover it, but you see it right there, the movement. 3,000 souls were transformed in a moment. They believed. They believed the good news. Oh, friends, I want to see a movement happen here in Fairfax, Virginia. I want to see a movement happen in Fairfax County, in North Virginia, in the Washington, D.C. metro area, on the East Coast, in the United States, and around this world. I want to be a part of a movement that isn't just changing laws and changing legislation that we know cannot truly touch human hearts. I want to be a part of a movement together with you and me and those sitting in this room and our partner churches all around this globe to say we're a part of a movement that proclaims a message that can transform lives one by one, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But all of this assumes one thing. All humanity has a need before God that God himself must take care of in order to make things right. You see, what Christianity has right, if it's based in the scripture, is this, is that we can be optimistic about God's grace, but we know we are pessimistic about human nature. That's why your friends need you. That's why my friends need me. That's why I've got family that, that certainly is good at practice, practicing religion, but they have no cure for their hard hearts. They need to hear the good news about the Christ. They need to repent and believe in the good news about Jesus so that they can receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. But who will go? Who will go? Who will be the messengers living on this mission? Will you? Will I? Will we together go and bring the good news about Jesus the Christ? And that's what this means for Monday. Last, a couple of weeks ago, I, I challenged you about your stories, right? Your stories. Thinking about how, how has God changed my life through the gospel of Jesus Christ? And, and just think about it. How can I explain that? The before Christ, the getting to know Christ, and then the new life I have in Christ. Like, how do I frame that in a story that maybe lasts one minute or, or five minutes or, or maybe 15 minutes? You know, my wife and I, we were driving with two of our kids a couple of weeks ago, and I said, well, I can't ask my friends at Fairfax Bible Church to do this if I'm not willing to do it. And so we were in a drive for a couple of hours and we just started talking. It was awesome to hear my kids talk about their experience in knowing Jesus. And they got to practice it a little bit. And I'm wondering, are, are you willing to practice it? Now, if you haven't done it over the last two weeks, don't feel guilty. Let's just renew the challenge. Can we get out there speaking the good news about Jesus Christ, the only cure for hard hearts, the cure that your coworkers need, our neighbors need, our family members need, is a messenger that delivers a message about the Christ to cure a hard heart. That's the challenge to you. That's the challenge to me, to live on this mission, to be a part of this movement to see the gospel of Jesus Christ be spread out all throughout this area and all throughout the world. Let's, let's bow our heads and pray. And what we're gonna do right now is we're just gonna thank the Lord for sending his son, Jesus the Christ. And we do thank you, Father. You've given us the only cure that could really reach down into our hearts and change us from the inside out. It's not laws, it's not legislation, it's not TED Talks, it's not better politics, it's not better uh, ecosystems. What it is it's a transformation of the heart from the inside out. And that only comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ communicated by spirit-empowered people. And so, Father, we're asking, would you please give us 
the motivation, the zeal to live on mission. That we would see our neighbors, our friends, maybe our our kids. Can we start with the children that sleep under our roofs to say the mission, the message, the Christ, their hearts, their sin, their hard hearts are too important for me to remain silent any longer. I must speak to the goodness of Jesus. Help us at Fairfax Bible Church to put down our remote controls, to put down our smartphones, maybe just long enough to look up and see somebody sitting across the table, sitting across the hallway in a, in a workspace, maybe sitting in a cubicle two spaces down, maybe, maybe driving into the garage next door to say, I've got to go and speak good news to this friend. We can't do it without your spirit. And so we're asking that you'd fill us with your spirit today. We're asking that you'd move us to speak of Jesus, who is the Christ, the center of our gospel message that is the only cure for our hard hearts.